Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You're listening to The Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn, hosted by yours truly, BJ R. Nathan. The Truth to Power Show places a weekly guest in the proverbial meditation cushion to engage in a thoughtful conversation at the intersection of the personal and the political. We'll be having talks with poets and writers, leaders and teachers, allies and practitioners. The greatest risk we take is to tell our own personal truth. Let us be heard. Listen every Thursday at 9 a.m., and stay tuned for our first episode. Thank you very much. The first episode of the Truth to Power show welcomes Vanessa Jimenez-Gab. Vanessa received her MFA in Creative Writing Poetry from CUNY Brooklyn College, where she was a recipient of the 2010 Iman Brown Award in Poetry. She is the author of Images for Radical Politics, which is the editor's choice in the 2015 Rescue Press Black Box Poetry Prize Contest and the chapbooks Midnight Blue, and Weekend Poems. In 2012, she founded the literary project Five Quarterly with writer Chrissy Van Meter. Currently, she teaches at New York Academy and for Brooklyn Poets. She's from and lives in Brooklyn. So we'll be having a conversation about poetry and about uh, economics of poetry, the cross-sectionality, intersectionality of these two topics, and how we as people um, in the body economics in our day-to-day life. We're talking about the differences and the foundation between poetry and fiction, as well as touching in on some of our popular fandoms, such as Star Trek and Harry Potter. So stay tuned for the full episode, um, and hope you enjoyed the program. Thanks very much. tells me and I tell another worker, the first worker only able to tell because this worker sits at a different table part of the week and is becoming less of a worker, caught by this something all of us should know, but by virtue of being workers don't. This is told by one who has more access to another who has less, so now we all are learning about ourselves and how they come for us in the cool, so sure we are just in from the waves. We are not at all just in from the waves. A beach we repose by in the middle of the work is what they say when they demand a thing about more, more in less time. Over time, there is less dreaming about water and going. Where does the day go? The day is not moving at all. And all the wondering about action instead of inaction. Should I love deeply is a question that should never be. Here with poet Vanessa Jimenez Gab, and we're going to talk about uh, poetry. Um, so, first thing, first question is why poetry and what attracts that form? Hey, BJ. Um, well, I actually started writing not in the poet poem form. I was 
a fiction writer first. Um, really was attracted to narrative and yet I'm very impatient or I was impatient you know growing up and um, in earlier years and so the poem form came to me at a time when I wanted to write creatively and I always had but um, I kind of just wanted to create these snapshots of the world and my world and the world that I saw and I actually took a really cool elective during undergrad with the poet, the late poet Deborah Diggs, um, and it was on Dickinson Bishop of, and Plath, and we did a lot of reading of their work and writing of our own, and um, the poem form just somehow, after reading those women, those particular women, just stuck with me and seemed to make sense for that time um, in my life and. So that was about, I don't know, 15 years ago. And so I've been, I've been writing predominantly poems um, ever since. Okay, yeah, I completely agree with the idea that fiction is, in a way, has its restrictions and expectations, but poetry has its own expectations, but the fact that it's easily digestible from the reader's perspective, right. and it gives little snapshots of a larger mosaic of vision. Right, right, and I think because it's not as commercialized as some of the other um, writing or art forms. Mm. There's a lot more, um, I guess, presumably a lot more freedom to do what you want and make mistakes how you want. Um, the poetic license, so to speak, the poetic right? license, yeah. right, exactly. The ability to experiment, the ability to, the freedom to experiment in the poem is uh, uh, much more attractive than in fiction where you're, you're set more formulas and more the expectation of building action, climax, resolution. Right, um, which I think, you know, if you're trying to make a living, I'd imagine that working with larger presses, you have to adhere to that yeah, even that... more. So it's interesting that the economic component of that um, informs maybe some of the writing that you come up with. Definitely um, the audience has expectations and there's more of an emphasis on them as a paying customer to meet the movies and meet the fiction books even because many times you have a translation of fiction to movies so the expectation that right. they would meet those expectations that pay customer is going to kind of hold their feet to the fire in that regard right exactly and then there's always you know the the component of poetry which is um there's this you know con the idea that it's hard to understand and so mm. many people have um written about that or against that and and that it's not the kind of writing that we're used to. Um, it's a little more abstract and a little ineffable and harder to kind of grasp onto. But I think that's sort of what's nice about it, that you don't, you might not understand every little thing, but somehow you understand it because of the feeling, right? And like the way it soaks, you soak into it and it soaks into you. So yeah. um, maybe it's not meant to be understood so much as just absorbed, you know? Exactly. I think like what ends up happening for me is that with my poetry is that um, we're trying to express what's going on in our internal world, which may not conform to uh, what the, the established boxes that we have in commercialized right. society and these kinds of things and we're trying to attract an audience to uh, think differently about their own experiences sure getting more reinterrogated the reader being more empowered to interrogate the text and I, I would totally agree with that and in addition to the internal stuff I would say maybe you're writing about you're trying to recast in your writing some of the external stuff to, mm -hmm. to work against 
whatever master narrative has been put forth, you know, so based on your internal experience, um, how, how you see the external world differently and vice versa, how is the external world informing, informing you um, in ways that maybe we're not getting in everyday um, public spaces as far as media is concerned or anything like that, or the news, like the way that's being packaged might not make sense with our intuition about something. Yeah, I think that ends up happening with the, the mainstream side talking points and we have kind of a prepackaged ideas that people are then latching onto and not necessarily digesting. So in this kind of a form of poetry, we have a chance to interact with those narratives, master narratives, yeah. and then uh, create our own sub-narrative or... Right, yeah. yeah, no, totally, I agree with that. So in your work, um, you start to talk about the economic self and, and the self, how it, how it interacts, the narrative economics, the material self, yeah. Can we discuss a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, my father is a, a professor of economics, and so growing up, that was sort of one of the first languages I had, this language around money and class dynamics um, and words that I didn't necessarily just know uh, terminology and a vocabulary palette that I didn't hear elsewhere. Um, and so the lens through which I look and happen to agree with him on um, is, is one of class. I find it really interesting. I find it um, not as spoken about as some of the other sort of prisms or perspectives that um, are often discussed and, and dealt with and interrogated. And so I <clears throat> combined with what I was saying about poetry earlier about what attracted me to it, I think just to make it a little more pointed and specific, I tend to See the world through an economic lens so of course you know for me it would make sense if that it would follow that my poetry also does that um and tries to ask questions because i'm not an economist so i don't have that sort of understanding the way someone like my father would though i am a person in the world i i have to go to work every day um i get a paycheck i have bills i have all the numbers and the math of daily life that many of us do have and so I understand on an intuitive level some of the things that happen to me and to us um, even if I don't have some of the language for it or the knowledge of why it is so I think my poems are um, without being an economist trying to understand the why of, of that status um, through, that, through that perspective. There's a story about these two fish one uh, approaches the other fish and says, how's the water going? He's like the older fish. How's the water feeling? And the other fish says, what are you talking about? It's water. And it's like where the fish is immersed in the water, the younger fish is immersed in the water and doesn't really have an understanding that this is different from the, the, the larger. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I like that analogy. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's the fact that, like, you don't, um, like, if I understand that correctly, it's like, the, it's just, it is what it is because the fish is um used to it you know yeah. and so as much as i'm used to certain things in my daily life that have to do with money at a certain point um things little explosions happen you know and you start to really ask why and you start to come to a consciousness mm. that maybe um the fish might come to mm. if the the water disappears because of climate change, you know, or something exactly, like that. Exactly. So there's something that has to happen externally, maybe, um, for you to kind of um, wake to some of the things that I think you're always thinking about but don't have time to, and then 
until you're forced to. There's always, a, I think, breakthrough moments for every person where they start to see the what, what they previously had tuned out as white noise in their life. Yeah. You know, things, aspects of their life they took for granted, things that they uh, thought would always be there, and suddenly this, the absence uh, calls to attention. It's uh, the need or the necessity to examine uh, money being one of them. Yeah. You know, when there's times when you can't afford to buy something you want, uh, then all of a sudden you're realizing, well, assessing what do I want and what my desires are. And yeah, and, and then starting to talk to others and, and, you know, listen to what's going on elsewhere in your little world and then, you know, outward and see that maybe some of this stuff is a pattern and what does that mean then if it's not just me? You know, exactly. like where do we go from there if it's, if it's a larger systemic issue? Um, how could it be that like, you know, if you have a hundred people, ninety of them don't can't afford something, is it a problem with them if it's ninety out of one hundred, or is it a problem with whatever structure they're sort of in um, that maybe deserves another look at? You know. Mm. So I think that definitely connecting when we think about our personal lives, connecting our personal narratives with the larger narratives found in community with others who are. Uh, going through similar parallel narratives and finding the, the phrase of personal is political yeah. is very interesting to me. And I think that the idea of connecting our personal lives and, and the political and how those lines are being blurred in many ways. Yeah, and I guess, you know, I used to always think of being political as, you know, did you vote this year, um, you know, every four years? Yeah. Uh, do you vote every four years? Um, and, you know, you'll hear people say they're not political at all. Yeah. Um, I'm not involved in that. And yeah. yet I think maybe that definition is very flexible because I think everything that we do, the choices that we make, what we're allowed to do with our day and how we're allowed to spend our time in our lives mm -hmm. is very much a function and a manifestation of, um, you know, economic stuff, race, gender, all the identity politics that make up you which are heavily political at the end of the day. So by extension, wouldn't the personal be political from a certain you know, perspective? I exactly, think? I think that uh, there are people who like to limit themselves in the narrative saying, you know, um, you know have a limiting narrative saying, or tags on themselves, like um, this um, Republican, I'm um, Democrat, I'm um, progressive, and then they limit themselves to just those uh, ideas of what the narrative defines those terms as, rather than uh, understanding where they're at now as a person, as an individual in their own system, and then how it connects to those larger people. And finding those connections is important because I think especially with this increasingly divisive uh, narrative that we have in the political spectrum, you know, we have more and more people uh, holding fast to their ideas and uh, more and more people finding that as a reason to be uh, yeah, Ooh, sure, yeah. sure. And yeah. like all this behavior that seems so, uh, like everything's so um, uh, broken. And, and yet I think at the same time, I, I wonder how surprised, um, you know, I am or not surprised if I think of underlying all that stuff is this machine yeah. um, of, of the economics of capitalism, right? That makes everything churn or not. And, and I think, you know, the fear that drives people to do certain things and all of that at the end of the day, I think if you can trace it back to what people are allowed and, um, you know, 
in terms of money and in terms of the discussion about class and um, what they're scared of in their daily lives as far as if they're going to find work, if they're going to be able to feed their families. And this is like all very simplifying the questions yeah. that we deal with every day. But yeah. to a certain extent, they are these basic needs that we're wondering about. And I think um, more and more our basic needs are being eroded, our basic rights are being eroded. So it's like, what is the mechanism that's sort of underlying all that if if it is such a nationwide thing, you know, like has this stuff been latently hanging out there for a while? Yeah, I think definitely it's part of the human narrative, you know, in some ways the commodification of, you know, uh, the commodification of um, our lives and alienation that we go through, the disconnection with our labor is important, that we have people who are working for someone else who then takes the ownership of their labor, their product, saying that I'm the one who um, created this, even though they're the ones on the ground doing the work. And then that creates that alienation that whatever I'm doing is really not for my benefit, it's really for the benefit, which is, you know, complicated. Right, totally complicated. And and a really good job is done to keep you sort of disconnected from yourself and Mm -hmm. your own power, because if you're the one helping to create something, whether that's at a factory or at a school, um, with work that's a little more intangible and maybe more intellectual in nature, yet still you're putting in your time and your effort and your body and your stress and your love and all of that. Um, I think it's it's ironic that we are so alienated in some ways, even though we have so much power that like, if we're the ones helping to turn the wheel, you know, um, we there's so much power there that we've yet to realize and yet there's so many things like fear, like all the divisive stuff, like all the manifestations that keep you from kind of tapping into that to be like, well, hey, actually, like, just because they're employing me doesn't necessarily mean um, they have, if anything, you know, I'm, I'm the one here in the trenches. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And recognizing your own power and uh, giving yourself the opportunity to uh, take ownership of our work on a day-to-day level and then say that this is part of our our being, our, 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 our work in the world, being a larger narrative. You know? I love that phrase yeah. too, our work in the world. And then just like using that like collective pronoun, you know, mm-hmm. that we or our, um, I think is something that's really difficult and maybe yet increasingly easier at least to do these days. But you know, so much about our society is built around the I and the individual and mm-hmm. me, me, me. And of course you're like, worried about you how could you not be and so to, to start to use a we just on a language level mm. is really interesting like I, I, I also find that sort of choice super political too right exactly. that you would start to do that and that's what politicians do yeah like rhetoricians like they stand up and they always use that they always invoke the collective right exactly. like that's this but it's it's used in a way that I, I'm, I'm not sure you know I agree with at the end of the day it's yeah. um, it's a maneuver the danger of I think using the we is to know or be conscious of when we apply the we who who are we including who's in the in group and who's in the app who's the day the shadow day right so I like to try to think of it as we as all people we as all human beings so I try it's to think totally of that, yeah. a humanist route yeah. to that yeah. you know um and yeah, sure, maybe there will always be some small part of the population that isn't included in that for whatever reason or isn't on board. But mm. right now, um, I think incre- like, you know, we have all these things that divide us and yet we're sort of waking up to them as maybe not ultimately, you know, divide. we have more in common than we think. 
Exactly. So are we are we reaching a we? Mm. So mm. find that common ground. Then when you find a narrative that you can um, connect to it, and then uh, kind of allowing yourself to not just thinking of it as an isolation, but rather as, as part of not just thinking of it as an nice as part of a human experience. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. feel that. Yeah, I feel that. Yeah. So we're gonna uh, take a brief uh, pause. And then uh, we'll be back in a few minutes. Um... You're listening to The Truth to Power Show, hosted by yours truly, VJR Nathan. The Truth to Power Show is brought to you by Radio Free Brooklyn, a nonprofit organization that uh, gives a global voice to local artists and residents and provides a commercial-free, free-form internet radio platform. If you'd like to support organization, please go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com backslash donate. Or you can sponsor the show at RadioFreeBrooklyn.com backslash truth to power. Donations from people like you definitely support the vision of this, of this organization and the vision of this show. If you'd like to be a guest on uh, Truth to Power, you can write to TruthToPowerShow at gmail.com. Thank you very much, and uh, we'll take a quick uh, musical inter- interlude before we return to our interview. So now we'll take a few minutes to listen in on a song by Speakeasy, and the last uh, letter of that word is uh, E with a uh, line over it, um, called Compromise, and you can follow them at facebook.com backslash speakeasy music, and once again, it's, a, it's an E instead of a Y, and... Um, what can I say about this song? Uh, I just kind of caught my attention because I met the uh, lead singer at a leadership retreat in Vancouver a couple years back. And, you know, we had the opportunity to display our talents during this retreat. And I felt like, you know, she has a very powerful voice and I wanted to support her music when she's starting a band and uh, they're putting out an LP soon. So you can follow their music at, once again at, on Facebook. Um, and uh, if you'd like your band to be spotlighted in our song of the week, please write to truth to, truth to power show at gmail.com and I'll take a look at your videos and such. And I'll definitely uh, put in the plug for you guys. Thanks so much. Enjoy the music. And we'll be back to our interview in a few minutes. Thank you. supposed to be and I can't help but replay all the things that went wrong and I wonder had I treaded gently would you be more inclined to go to bed for me and I wonder just how differently we'd have to show up to truly be Be no kind. 
I can no longer apologize for my needs. Boy, you've known this whole time. I'm an intimacy junkie. I want to access you like I access myself. Let me dive into you and see if this curiosity can be quelled.
gives their gives their labor power to you know hopefully for the better and and just what they go through and what they're not paid and so that stuff is always super inspiring to me on a, on a you know daily basis um as far as some poets yeah, you're or, mentioning about the class you took yeah. um about if you mentioned Sylvia Plath as being yeah, the influence, yeah. yeah totally yeah. I mean I the confessionalist vibe in school mm-hmm. is something that I think um I think I participate in a lot in my work that I would like to maybe tap into more more of the I stuff I think because of the worldview is tends to look at the collective mm-hmm. um I often have a harder time just speaking about me and my own emotions and I don't think that's a um a secret given the fact that that's kind of the way I look at things but I think um, somehow when you as a writer when you put the eye on the page yeah and you give it to the reader and they're reading the eye they have to I think in the process of reading the process of interrogating the text they have to then take on the eye it's, it would be difficult I think for a reader to be like this is about you sure you know, there's definitely a process of identification where it becomes sure. the process of writing and creating the narrative and putting in the page absolutely yeah. and like the eye is never me exactly it's exactly. always some remove you know yeah. or some persona but um I, you know i that's I, something a lot of people confuse you know a lot of people when i when sure. they're like this is all you and about you and your narrative or you know they think that when they meet you sometimes that they know you so well because they've read some right or like my students yeah. will yeah. will say you know well we'll be reading something and like a poem by Seamus Heaney the other day and yeah. they were like well in this line Heaney you know um is saying that his brother you know is dead and I'm like well sure like there's certainly some inspiration from his real life that he's using here but we can't assume the eye is him you exactly, know exactly. a lot um, of times they take on a persona and we may not be, they may not have to necessarily say this is a persona poem. Right. this is something totally. you know totally. this kind of thing yeah so, so, so. Um, you know, just trying more to write into the, the real eye or as much as I can um, before it hits the page or, or after it hits the page. Um, I've always, so that's, so Platt has been helpful for that. Um, Williams, William Carlos Williams is one of my favorites. Um, but then your work particularly, I think, I've uh, seen that you've integrated in narratives, as you mentioned discussing previously, the economic narrative. Yeah. So you mentioned your dad, but then also what other thinkers or what economic theories have you read that, or any, how do you get that information? Or do you, yeah. So, so sure. Like that was some of what I was saying as far as, you know, I'm not as versed in, in the technical school of economics, yeah. um, but I think by virtue of being um, a human and a working human, you have a very good sense of economic yeah. as far as making that a little more fine tuned. Um, I think we were talking um, before, or I mentioned before, about Rick Wolf, who's a professor of economics um, at, I believe, the New School right now, or City College, I forget, one of the two. Um, And he, so he's always got great economic updates monthly, Mm -hmm. um, and speaks about current events for laymen, lay people, um, with an economic lens. I recently also just finished a book called labor's untold story which was just absolutely fascinating it's like the labor bible from i would say the civil war post-civil war to till about the 50s 1950s and it just goes through all of the untold narratives around working people in the united states um and from the age of the first millionaire post-civil war um to to post World War Two and it's just fascinating. Um, there it was just so rich and full of 
names and dates and deaths and successes and ultimately all the ways like anything we have now in the working world was because of a long line of a long history of fighting for it nothing ever given and so while labor isn't economics i can't help but think like when you think of economics yeah, right labor is sort of hand in hand with that yeah. so so yeah i was super inspired by that work and trying to figure out how to work that into my current you know project that i'm working on and, and i think what you have here in some of your writing is that it almost comes off like a foreign language introduced so uh so it's like you're having a lot of figures and numbers and such there's one poem i read where you're referencing statistics and things like that yeah. so sometimes statistics can be its own language totally and like all the all the disciplines have their own like palette that's super poetic and mm -hmm. that we pull from every day when we're at work in our own little pods you know like you use that language if you work in computers with, yeah. with your computer colleagues all the jargon all the jargon industry i use, I use yeah. the academic language with my teaching colleagues mm -hmm. um and so all that stuff you know like i i went to a um a premiere last night of of a documentary um about a friend of mine directed and the movie is called shot in the dark and it's it follows a um basketball team high school basketball team in the west side in the west side of chicago rough area you know oppressed disenfranchised area and just how the you know the metaphor of basketball fighting for for the game and and just trying to survive in the streets and and trying to survive a life but I just found it so interesting that, like, the coach, when he would speak to the kids, or the kids who, um, you know, are are in and out of a really um, rough life and, and see really the underbelly of capitalism, and it's, like, at its finest, like, the vicious cycle of, for these poor kids who I kept forgetting were high schoolers, and I think of my high school students, and it was really sad, but um, anyway, the what they were saying was so poetic, and yeah. just using the language of whatever it is, the, the hood, the, the basketball, exactly. um, we're ultimately talking about the human experience. Hu so absolutely. Whatever, uh, however that comes out, that comes out, whatever jargon we use, whatever things we're using, ultimately our experience, the human experience. And to pick up on another thread we, we were starting to talk about, brushed across, was you were mentioning the poets of, you were identifying as confessional poets, but also being the gender identification of like women poets. Sure. So if you could talk a little bit about how it informs your work and if you consider yourself feminist or if that term had become something that, yeah so you know. um i think women i think if you i forget who said it and it's i'm gonna mess up the quote but it's something along the lines of like if you're um doubly oppressed you're doubly dangerous or something mm. like that so i think women um people of color yeah. um people who are not adhering to some gen you know gender sexuality binary yeah. um anyone who falls in that camp and, that, and the list goes on um, are are way more I guess living on the edges of society of mainstream society so you're way more maybe um, uh, aware that things can can change one day you know or you hope for that um, and so yeah of course I absolutely think my, think of myself as a feminist I think yeah. of myself as a humanist so yeah. by virtue of that I think of course I'm a feminist I'm yeah. I'm, I'm here to to be a woman to understand what that means mm. um but but that's not where it would end for me i would say exactly. you know i'm also i'm also thinking about 
the various other parts of my identity and, and make me that make me who I am and make me, um, you know, sort of at the bottom of the totem pole for whatever, you know, like there are a variety of factors that make that up, not only be, not only my gender, yeah. I or think that how I, how, I, how I identify. Yeah, one thing I would like to echo is the idea that, you know, identification and, and um, with groups and larger groups and larger narratives, sometimes we end up uh, internalizing kind of the mainstream narrative of how they perceive your group. You know, I think that, you know, the stereotypes and the ideas about, say, Indian Americans or for me or uh, other other groups, there are things uh, how they can be internalized. There's a danger internalizing those stereotypes and then just falling into kind of a problematic area, you know, psychology, I guess. I don't know. Sure, and, yeah. and how hard is it to stay true to whatever your truth is? You mm. know, like we're being hit from everywhere with all sorts of um, deceit and, and, you know, non-truth and so... Alternative truth. That's what they're calling it. Yeah, right? um, it's a way to so, spin it. So, yeah. exactly. So how is it, you know, it's, it's a wonder that any of us can not be alienated mm. from stuff like that. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's such hard work and I guess that's what we're all striving for, especially as artists and writers and poets. Like, yeah. what better time to be writing poetry? You know. Yeah, I think reaching out and, and for people who feel isolated, seeing those seeing those uh, those approaches being taken in writing and the media, then make, empowers them. And it's more of the community getting rally rally call for the community. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm of the you know if you. At least I can only speak for myself as as a, someone who considers herself a poet, or someone who writes poems and um, is an observer of the world. Mm. Uh, I guess I'm at no loss for material, yeah. you know. And gosh, like it's 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 akin to someone saying, "Well, you know, I'm bored today." You know, like there's so much that you could be exploring in your work to better understand the world, to better understand yourself. Um, with all of the craziness that's happening, which is not brand new craziness, yeah. you know, We'd this has like all to, have been ready to go. We, I think we like to think of it. We're yeah, like think it's someone new, or so, that right, this is somehow such a surprise, yeah. or it's some big change in our world. Yeah. And in fact, I would argue it's the opposite. It's exactly like where our world has led us to exactly, up until this exactly. moment. For yeah. me, yeah, I, I agree with that because I think that when we think about the past years and think about. You know, they'd being like, oh, wow, it's awakening. But actually, just for some people in the media, right. their narrative has been disrupted because the media is not closing up to the president and all this kind of stuff. Right, that's a really yeah. good point. So, um, but uh, the other thing was about um, kind of uh, understanding these narratives within, uh, just speaking from personal experience, you know, I have a lot of community coming up to me having seen some of the books, that, some of the material I put out there with Escape from Samsara. And yeah. we have like the community coming to me and saying that they like that. There's indeed an author coming out. I really appreciate that. Sure. You know, it's really great to come out to the readers and such. Yeah, it's encouraging that they're connecting on that level. Right. And they're uh, feeling a way, releasing <coughs> name and saying, that's someone I want to support. Yeah, it's always nice when people kind of um, read your work and um, are, you know, have something nice to say about it or mm. how it made them feel. Exactly. Um, and how they, you know, related to it. Or if, if on the flip, if they didn't enjoy it, um, it at least made them feel something, you know. Um, and then further, if someone's kind of down with the ideology that's present, um, mm. you know, it's almost like poetry is is a vehicle 
for mm-hmm. some sort of social activism. You know, for me, like it's it's I don't know if it's the end product for me. That's something that I've been exploring too the whole time, you know, as I've been writing all these years. Um, do I write it for poetry's sake or do I write poetry for like for progress sake? You know, exactly. I think um, that definitely is a vehicle that's much more um, powerful in a way than uh, fiction because I think what ends up happening with fiction is that um, people read the story and they read it on the story level hmm. and they're not interrogating the ideologies behind that story level. So the nar- you get lost in the narrative right. um, and then they don't see the, what's the framework that it's built upon. So many novels may have hmm. what we call formulaic uh, alter- alternatives to the formulaic model and every choice they make is then a powerful choice every, uh, that deviates in that formula and some people will just be like so for example you know, I recently saw Mother which was, was uh, Darren Aronofsky's movie yeah. which you know baits you in with a uh, invasion um, narrative a home invasion narrative and then switches into kind of a meta narrative you know, looking at storytelling and I was a little prepared for that, so I wasn't completely pulling the rug on my feet when I went to see it. I'd seen some hints that it was going along those lines, and also, of course I've seen his huh. other movies, sure. so I was a little prepared. But uh, some of the recall and the, and, the, and the reviews and such online were, like, pretty harsh, you know? Really? Did yeah. you enjoy it, though? I, I enjoyed it. Know, I enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah, I enjoyed it, and I think that it's kind of an example of what I mean by, you know, t- the, the difference in just... Getting lost in now and forgetting what ideologies are behind those narratives. Right, and and to a certain extent, I wonder if that's why fiction is much more um, marketable and commodified um, than poetry, for example, mm. because it's so, a veil that's, that's over, you know, it. even if it's literary fiction, right, or mm. social realism, you know, I'm thinking of someone like Arthur Miller, um, who we just read, I just read with my kids, we read The Crucible and the way that that the Salem witch trials for him were sort of mimicking, um, or the McCarthy era and the, yeah. the witch hunt there, you know, mimic the puritanical one. Um, but so I'm sure there's tons of writing, you know, John Steinbeck, I'm thinking of too, mm. there's tons of like working class fiction as a genre that's out there that I think, um, isn't as loud as some of the other genres, yeah. right? Like, and, and, and yet, you know, there's something like Harry Potter that I think is such a cool take on on the world, but it's at once removed. And so yeah. for me, I, I like poetry because I, I could still be close to the subject of reality mm. um, and and not move away. Like, I don't want to move away from it yet. Like, I'd love to sit down to a prose fiction project. Yeah. Um, but I'm not done yet, I think, with trying to work through my own thoughts about um, reality from a poetry perspective. And... And just get, so, sort of working through that, through through the writing of poems and arrangement of words, and um, before moving on to something like fiction, which I'm not saying precludes yeah. you from writing about reality. Yeah, I'm just saying because of the way it's been commodified, yeah, and you also, may have more rules around what you can write. Exactly, I think that what ends up happening is people when they read like kind of mainstream fiction and the contemporary. Uh, genre uh they're like uh you know classics i think are taught in a in a way that makes the themes and the ideologies more accessible in school yeah but then when people pick up you know lace john grisham or uh patterson or something like that they're not interrogating it the, the reason to read that is escapism or the reason exactly to read that is, right yeah. and so so i guess i i 
we all participate in escapism. You know, mm. how could we not? But I guess yeah. if I'm sitting down intentionally and deliberately to write something, I'd rather try and go for the opposite of that, mm. um, which is getting closer to the thing instead of kind of trying to distract myself from the thing. And I think we're hit with all sorts of distractions mm. every day. You know, like it's so interesting. Like I went to Cuba in june in that during that small window where it was open mm. before it was closed and after it was closed so like it was this odd time to be there and it felt like a really important moment um or mm. time to be there but they have no you know and for all of the the flaws that i saw there one of the cool things that i saw was um one of the many cool things that i appreciated was the fact that they had no like billboards or signage or advertisements on like their highways or whatever stretch of where you might go to Times Square yeah. and like be inundated Usually and so messages. that was an interesting messages maybe, yeah. sure and like yeah. all the like all the ways we're sold stuff that we don't need and we have this fetishism around these commodities and and it's like that's not a thing in a place like Cuba you know like yeah. so then what is the purpose of life is it yeah. to get the next iPhone like what's what then like the paradigm shifts where the mentality shifts, um, and I'm not for better or for worse, whatever that that aside, it's just the fact that like if you're not if your if your whole life's work isn't to make enough this month to get that iPhone, mm. what is the driving motivation? You know that yeah. changes the game. And also in contrast or comparison, I went to Korea in uh, summer of this year, and you know we went to the border, the DMZ, yeah, and we got a little bit of a chance to get a taste of the North Korea um, How was that? atmosphere. Uh, so basically, there's the DMZ and then the joint security area, where this is actually where you enter in a room with a table. There's an area, half the room is owned by North Korea and half the room is, is part of South Korea. But it's part, it's all, the whole area is, is governed by the United Nations. So right. uh, in that area, you know, you get a sense of, it's so uh, regimented in the yeah. sense that it's a, there's a huge protocol for what you can and can't do in the JSA area. There's no pointing, there's no, you know, there's different activities you can't do like that. So they, they could, you know, they say uh, it would incite hostility. Hmm. So that's the way they frame it. But um, it just gives you a perspective also on these kinds of governments and societies and regimes that uh, then put a tight uh, fist on. They're very even conscious of, in narrative, you know, they, they want to present everything in a way that's propaganda. Right, which which I guess we could call what we have here too. You yeah. know, like like the propaganda machine is is really on high here, yeah. you know, and it's it seems to be more on high um, when we have issues that they don't want us to think about. Mm. You know, like it really kicks into full gear. Exactly, exactly. I think there's lots of uh, nodules to this machine that you know ways in which it exhibits itself that are more apparent than others so some things are a little bit more buried and some things are more obvious yeah uh, about how uh this machine right. propagates its narrative right. yeah all right so um let's see any closing thoughts let's see uh so i what, what, what do you think about the title you know the podcast called the truth to power show that's something that i was thinking about for a long time and what does that mean to you or what does that idea of speaking truth to power mean to you? I think like I um I think of for a second Nietzsche's like will to power. Mm -hmm. Um but I'm not I'm not thinking of that. But yeah. 
um, ultimately. But I thought of that for a second. I had a flash of that. But truth to power, I mean, I think kind of trying to reach a point of um, becoming a little more in touch with yourself and the system in which you live and thinking of the individual as a product of that system. And yet we can still retain individuality, but there are things that we all are informed by and our behavior, if we traced it back to a systemic problem, Mm. we might get some light into ourselves. So I think if I'm going by that definition of truth, I think once we tap into that, we could then harness some of that power that I think I referenced earlier in terms of, you know, going into a workplace and being the one doing a lot of the work. Yeah. It's a thankless job, and yeah. and why is it that I'm not making as much as pers- the other person yeah. above me who's not working as hard? You know, whatever the case is. So, I think if you whatever truth you have, and you know, mine is my version is the one I just said. Um, yeah. As much as we can, insofar as we can, like get in touch with that truth, then that would that can convert ideally to some sort of um, power that we then can have to change and and you know, progress and develop and evolve the way humans are supposed to. Yeah, I think it seems like every thought, every action we take is uh, perpetuating uh, larger systems. So being aware of what narratives and what flow of energy is through us, is flowing through us. And even private thoughts, we're thinking things like we may think things like, you know, this is a a good day because I made a certain amount of money. Mm -hmm. Or you may qualify our value based on, I'm, I'm, I become a race, so therefore I'm doing better with my. We kind of figure out, you know, we, we right. have a narrative of how we determine whether or not our life is progressing well, maybe based on how much material stuff we're accumulating. Or this right, kind of right. Yeah, so that's all, they, we consider that like all oh, my private life, my personal thoughts about my assessment, but actually it's part of, of the larger. It's narrative. part of. I, I totally yeah. agree with that hundred yeah. percent. I mean, I think. Um, if we're if we're gauging our life's value by um, you know materialism, material wealth, it would be interesting to see in a different world if that wasn't if profit, um, if materialism wasn't the driving yeah. factor. That's then you know, like, what then are we going for? Like, yeah. how are we? What what could we accomplish? Mm-hmm. Um, if if everyone had a shot at something equitably, you know, and it wasn't. Yeah. the next gadget you know yeah. um, for me that's why that's where it comes to like science fiction and fantasy and all this kind of stuff like Star Trek and, yeah. and Harry Potter maybe imagining worlds which have different uh, bases and foundational premises and using the language of you know the site language of, of Star Trek or the uh, fantasy and language of Harry Potter are sure. communicating that. And, and I love, I love that you brought up Star Trek because I'm like such a Trekkie and like such a Star Trek nerd and Gene Roddenberry definitely has, like, from what I understand, like, um, I, I think he was a socialist. Yeah. And, and so he was able to kind of create this this show in the 60s yeah. um, during this period where the conditions were such that people were looking for alternatives and economic alternative, economic mm. system alternatives to capitalism. And so I think that was it. But he packaged it in a way that wasn't... Um, too threatening, right? And, yeah. and it kind of went on primetime television in this way that it was like this is a future society, um, but it's it is one ultimately if you if you analyze that show, mm. um, it is one that or if you look at it a little more closely, it is one that where 
we are so far evolved where we don't have a money system anymore. Exactly. There's lots of little things they make choices about yeah. that inform the larger. Yeah. And what are they doing? Yeah. They're exploring yeah. where no one has gone. But like, you know, they're exploring yeah. planets and like things like that. Like, what if we actually, all of our energy was focused on doing that, you know, and like rediscovering, discovering new, new, new lands and new spaces. And instead of just trying to, you know, survive every day, like what if we actually lived yeah, I think everything that happens in this world has to start somewhere and it starts the imagination. So to imagine something and then hopefully slowly, slowly we'll make it happen. So Yeah, and and I think coupled with that, having an idea of, you know, that's why I wanted to read that Labor's Untold storybook. Not like that's mm. the be all end all of everything, but it was a way for me to get some language and some um, history around why why is it that we're in this current moment as workers or as Americans, whatever. Um this is not brand new. This is not something that has kind of just sprung up haphazardly. Like there's a political science to yeah. why we are where we are, you exactly, know, and exactly. economic science to it. Cool. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks, DJ. Thank you. It's awesome. Thanks for having me. Raise. I need a safe house everywhere I go. The invasions are every day. I have to spend more time than I have thinking about asking for more. If and when, might and exactly how much. Having everything before me. My life. In the summer, I don't drive much. I don't use the city's roads or tunnels or bridges. I can work another job for another employer. The fall, the winter, the spring, the little car, my silver pod. I become more proprietary. This is mine and this is yours. All year, the day, inherently, over time. After a certain point, I produce more than I am given. All year, I am a thing. All year, I am salt. I am not afraid to talk about money. Liberating to hear you say, this is nothing strange to me. I understand the beauty of our labor. Liberating to hear my sister say she is looking into different modes of representation. Liberating to hear my father and mother say, this is what it means to be on an exalted mission. This is what it means to know yourself. There is nothing unsafe left to talk about. This grand and that grand are what I am, but I had no say in that. And there is not enough more they'd be willing to give before this would become another this altogether. You've just finished listening to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. With your host, I'm your host, VJR Nathan. So you can follow me on Facebook at VJR Nathan Poet. And uh, check out my readings, upcoming readings of uh, a poetry book, a poetry collection called Celebrity Sadhana or How to Meditate with a Hammer. So go to VJRNathan.com to find out more and to attend those readings. Thank you for your kind listening attention. I hope to see you next week on Thursdays at 9 a.m. on Radio Free Brooklyn. Thank you so much.
Thank you.